Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The history of the popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the popes of Rome and church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Hey everyone, I'm Scott, and welcome to today's episode of History Unplugged. I want to start off with a nasty historical myth that won't die, and that has to do with the History Channel. Thanks to their show Ancient Aliens, it's now believed by some that aliens created the ancient pyramids in Egypt. If you've ever watched the show, there's a frequent commentator named Giorgio Tsoukalos. He's a guy with the really crazy hair and the beard, and he spawned all sorts of different memes where he's saying, I'm not saying it's aliens, man but it's aliens. Or uh, one that I really liked is, Henry Ford invented the Model T. You know what the T stands for? Aliens. You have to watch the show or you have to look up the memes to see what I'm talking about. So let's talk about why his ideas are so popular. The enigmatic nature of the pyramids is one of the reasons that these builders are the source of all sorts of speculation today, because we wonder, How could anyone actually build the pyramids? They're so fantastic and they seem so far beyond the technology that existed 4,000 years ago that there had to be help from extraterrestrials. We have almost no information about them, about the pyramid builders, except that they accomplish feats of engineering that were years or centuries or ahead of what anyone thought was possible at the time. The Giza pyramids were the largest buildings on Earth until the 19th century. The Great Pyramid stands at 481 feet, or 147 meters, above the plateau it's on, and it's made up of 2.3 million stone blocks, each one weighing from 2.5 to 15 tons, but despite all that, these blocks fit together as well as a jigsaw puzzle. The pulley system that existed in ancient times required to position such heavy stones fit together so perfectly that even today doing something like this would be mind-bogglingly complex. That would be if they had access to pulleys at all, which they didn't. In order to build such a massive structure without the benefit of even primitive technology, so there's images coming to mind of slaves being crushed under the weight of massive stones, or they're working together in tandem like drones in an ant colony carrying an enormous leaf. 
So this is why the aliens idea is so popular, because we just can't fathom how they actually did this. There's other puzzling characteristics of the pyramids, including the means by which the massive stone blocks and materials were transported to the remote site of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And the other thing that really puzzles people is all the advanced, so-called advanced scientific knowledge that are embedded in the pyramid's construction. The stones come from quarries that are hundreds of miles away from the site, and they appear to have been transported in one unit. And when I was talking about advanced scientific knowledge embedded in the construction, what I mean by that is that the Giza Pyramid complex, it lies at the intersection of Earth's longest lines of latitude and longitude. This geographical knowledge of the Earth's spherical nature and its exact dimensions were unknown to ancient Egypt, and they were unknown long after the decline of Egypt's old kingdom when these pyramids were built. So as a result, the History Channel and ancient aliens theorists think that the original architects were alien visitors to Earth who decided to lend a hand to the struggling slave laborers and leave a little bit of scientific Easter eggs for future people to discover like us. That's the idea, at least. Other theorists claim that the pyramids were built by a lost civilization, perhaps even the Atlanteans, if you believed in the lost city of Atlantis, whose advanced technology is no longer with us. So that was a long preamble because today I'm answering a question for Willie from New Jersey. And he says this to me, ancient Egypt has always fascinated me. Is there anything we can still use today from their culture? And what can we learn from their dynastic rule? So in today's episode, we're going to solve the mystery of how the pyramids were built. Spoiler alert, it's not aliens. Sorry, everyone. But we're not just going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about how the ancient Egyptians created or developed things like mathematics, bullying, interesting side note, the alphabet, wigs, cosmetics, and centralized bureaucracy, paper and writing, medicine, and even primitive surgery. And of course, we'll talk about engineering and the pyramids. And it's not just engineering that they left behind to us, but the ancient Egyptians form a lot of modern civilizations understanding of how we commemorate the dead. In this podcast, when we talk about ancient civilizations that impact the modern world, it's hard to stray away too far from ancient Greece or Rome. That has to do with the literary legacy that was passed down, that we know many ancient Greek writers. Ancient Egyptian writers, we simply don't know because much of the alphabet is um, inscrutable to us today. I mean, we understand the hieroglyphs and pyramids, but there weren't things left behind like political treatises or philosophical treatises in the same way that we have from ancient Greece. But the Greeks were deeply interested in ancient Egypt, and that was the cosmopolitan center of the world to them at the time. If we look at travelers like Herodotus, he went to ancient Egypt, he gave his theories on the development of the pyramids, and to him, this was the cultural high point of civilization, what the ancient Egyptians were doing. So they had major influence on Mediterranean civilizations at the time, and they still influence today in the 21st century and that's what we're going to talk about. Okay, well, let's look at the sources we do have to first figure out how the pyramids were built, whether archaeological sources or uh, actual reconstructions of people trying to build the pyramids today in the modern age, the way people built them in the past to see if they can figure it out that way. And, and archaeologists and Egyptologists have done this, so let's see what they have to say. First, let's start with the Greek historian Herodotus. He described the pyramids of Egypt in the 5th century BC, noting that the undertaking of their construction required 100,000 slaves working in shifts under the watchful eye of their slave masters. Of course, Herodotus wasn't actually there to witness the pyramids being built, 
they were already ancient by the time he began writing. And what's interesting is that the difference in time that separates the building of the ancient pyramids to Herodotus in the 400s BC is almost as far as from Herodotus to today. Well, recent discoveries associated with the tombs of the laborers also show that not only was Herodotus's estimate of the number of laborers too great by about two-thirds, but the workforce was made up of skilled tradesmen who were paid for their back-breaking work. They weren't slaves. The use of skilled labor on the pyramids contradicts our knowledge about labor in ancient Egypt. The image of a slave driver with a whip in hand shouting orders at miserable workers to move faster or risk death comes to mind maybe something out of the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. But new evidence shows that this is based more on conjecture or ideas about the brutal nature of ancient societies than the documentation or archaeological evidence we have found about the pyramid builders. New evidence shows that not only are these long accepted estimates of the number of slaves working on the pyramids wrong, but it sheds light on Egyptian society as a whole. Entire cities were actually built to house seasonal workers, and a scalable infrastructure grew up around them to support their ongoing effort. Sort of like how shanty towns would grow up for railroad builders in America in the 1800s, or today in North Dakota or Texas, where makeshift towns will be built up for oil workers. Pyramid construction was an industry in and of itself because of the longevity of each project. If it went on for decades and there were whole economies built around the construction of pyramids, and it required the mobilization of considerable resources. This meant that ancient Egyptians had to be capable of organizing a massive labor force and design and build cities and juggle astronomical costs. Just as there were divisions of temple workers who specialized in duties associated with the temples, there were similar divisions for pyramid workers. For Egyptian laborers, the work may have been exhausting, but it was good work if you can get it. Pyramid builders lived in cities that benefited from Egypt's growing economy, and based on the types of luxury goods we found in their tombs, they seemed to enjoy the luxuries that you could find in urban society at that time. They were served prime beef, goat, beer, and bread. They were commoners, they weren't high on the social hierarchy, but they were treated as a special class and given tax breaks and they were interred in tombs that were monuments of their efforts in building the final resting places for the pharaohs. Other bits of evidence that indicate that the room and board plan for the pyramid builders wasn't so bad include huge grain silos, which are evidence of cattle being imported from Egyptian hinterlands, and then they were processed and slaughtered and beef was given to them, and there were also bakeries dedicated to baking bread for large numbers of people that were discovered on the Giza Plateau toward the end of the 20th century. All of this evidence still doesn't explain how they actually built the pyramids, though. The size of the pyramids at Giza is still overwhelming, if you've ever seen them. They sit on the edge of the city of Cairo, and they lie along the Nile's west bank, and that, I mean, they still dominate the skyline there. So people who've seen the pyramids say it provokes wonder, and their imposing size that dwarf the buildings of modern-day Cairo and their shape still leads to astonishment regarding their construction. How could such a thing have been built with stone and copper tools, but without wheels, winches, or pulleys, no matter how skilled the laborers were? Well, recent research has shown that construction of the pyramids, while certainly one of the biggest undertakings in human history, wasn't something that could have only been done with the help of extraterrestrials or some kind of lost technology. Modern experts estimate that the buildings of Giza's Great Pyramid could have been completed by about 30,000 laborers within approximately 20 to 30 years. 
Considering the amount of time and resources required to complete projects and massive buildings in other civilizations, including in the United States, something like Mount Rushmore, pyramid construction could have been and was undertaken and completed by human hands. I mean, for example, many medieval cathedrals in Europe took decades or even centuries to complete, and these projects were completed without slave labor. The ancient Egyptians were master builders, and they utilized various quarries to extract the types of rock they needed to complete the pyramids. Rocks were hewn from gigantic slabs in the Aswan region, and then they were conveyed along a slick surface to barges. Scenes exist from antiquity depicting the process, in particular, a 19th century BC carving of a lubricated slipway down which a giant statue is being dragged by four groups of men that total about 200 people. The pyramids also once sat along a river route. While the Giza Plateau today is in desert, and that's why people think that the pyramids were basically beamed down, researchers have found evidence of ancient seasonal waterways leading into key points at Giza that were used by barges to haul stone. As archeologists continue to scout the area, the puzzle pieces have begun to fall into place and create a clearer picture of who the pyramid builders were and how they did what they did. In 1997, Egyptologist Mark Lear set out to combine these hypotheses into a unified theory, and he did so by making his own pyramid. His research grant wasn't generous enough to make a life-size replica that took billions of dollars, so he constructed a small-scale pyramid using a team of 12 men. Based on this model, he wasn't only able to calculate the manpower required for a project the size of the Great Pyramid of Giza, but he gained valuable insight into the process of how the process might have been and how it might have worked from quarrying the stones by hand to pulling them along the slipway and then setting them into place. So he definitely didn't quit his day job as an Egyptologist, that's sure. When the project was finished, Lair used the calculations to scale the model upward to the size of the Great Pyramid of Giza. His calculations determined that 1,200 men toiling every day could have quarried the amount of stone needed, while 2,000 men a day could have been employed to deliver the stone to the location. He worked with the structural engineers to determine that over a period of 20 years, the total number of men needed to construct the pyramid would average to about 5,000. Over the course of two decades, there would have been teams of men to support each other in service roles, bakers, butchers, other people like that, amounting to around 30,000 in all. So that's an explanation of how the pyramids were built. I think that's a good entry point into other aspects of ancient Egypt because that's something that we all know about. And we can see that the society, there was nothing supernatural. There was no lost technology going on. It was simply a well-ordered civilization that was very advanced for its time 4,000 years ago when there were really only Mesopotamian civilizations and civilization in China as well. But Egypt was unique in how advanced it was with administration, with bureaucracy, and this is why it could marshal the resources to build something like the pyramids when in a place like, say, Europe, there was absolutely nothing. I mean, it was primitive Bronze Age technology and what we found are copper pots and swords. And there's, that's why there's nothing like the pyramids in Egypt. Well, if we're going to look at Egyptian society, the place that you have to start with is the Nile. Everything with Egypt begins with the Nile. This is the reason early cosmopolitan civilization developed to such a sophisticated degree. Egypt is all about the Nile, and this has been understood at least as far back as Herodotus in the 400s BC. But of course, people observe this much earlier, since the entire economy of Egypt, both ancient and modern, is dependent on the Nile. 
And if you look at population maps of Egypt today, it's almost completely empty. And then there is a dark, 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 dark red sliver that goes directly down the Nile. This is where agriculture takes place. This is where commerce takes place on either side. It's desert. It also makes it difficult to invade Egypt. I mean, of course, you can come from the north, the Mediterranean, but coming from either side, that's desert and armies cannot cross desert. So the Nile has been the lifeline of the region for much of human history. The floodplain of the Nile gives humans the opportunity to develop a settled agricultural economy, and this has been true back to even the Neolithic era. Nomadic modern human hunter-gatherers began living in the Nile sometime around 120,000 years ago. By the late Paleolithic period, the climate of North Africa became increasingly hot and dry, forcing the population of the area to concentrate along the Nile region. By about 5500 BC, small tribes living in the Nile Valley developed into a series of cultures that had control of agriculture and animal husbandry, and they were identified by their pottery and personal items that archaeologists have found. They found bracelets, beads, and combs. The early dynastic period of Egypt was contemporary with the early Sumerian Akkadian civilization in Mesopotamia that happened around 3000 BC, and there was some primitive trade between these cultures. The Old Kingdom arose in 2600 BC, and major advances in architecture and art and technology were made during the Old Kingdom, fueled by increased agricultural productivity. And all this was made possible by a well-developed central administration that administered taxes, administered grain, and allowed for the division of labor, and allowed for things like pyramids to build up because you had bakers that could be mobilized to give bread to this population group, butchers that could be mobilized to travel to this area, all these things working together to accomplish these huge infrastructure projects. And the crowning achievements of ancient Egypt, like the Great Pyramids of Giza and the Sphinx, were built during the Old Kingdom. So that's a bit about ancient Egypt. Now let's run down some of the ways that Egypt has influenced modern life, getting back to Willie's question. So let's start with mathematics. The Egyptians were remarkable at mathematics. The earliest records of geometry came from Egypt, and their geometry specialists were called Arpidonopti. The Arpidonopti used ropes to calculate the area of lands, eventually passing this knowledge to Greece. Egyptians also worked out efficient ways of performing multiplication and division. While we have various ways to perform such calculations, Egyptians used a more computation-friendly method that involved doubling numbers, a technique we still use in modern-day computing. Egyptians also invented basic fractions. Another legacy of Egypt, which was actually done during the Hellenic period when one of Alexander's generals took over, um, Ptolemy. In the Ptolemaic period, one of the researchers there actually calculated the circumference of the Earth. But this was done in a society that had already had a huge appreciation of mathematics. Another thing that ancient Egypt offers to us is bowling. Now, there's not a direct line between the bowling that ancient Egypt did and bowling today, but I'll get into it. Archaeologist William Petrie found a child's game consisting of crude pins and small marbles and concluded it might have been related to bowling, but there wasn't any proof that they were used for such a purpose. But we have more solid evidence that it was. It was found in a room near a residential area from the second century. It featured several balls and a lane with a hole in the middle. Some of the balls could fit through the center hole while others were too big. Archaeologists believe it was a competitive game where one person tried to bowl the smaller ball into the hole, while someone on the other side of the lane tried to knock the ball off course with the larger one. Now getting into things that are a little bit more practical for modern life, Egypt contributed to the development of the alphabet. 
the alphabet that is used in English is derived from the Latin alphabet, which is derived from the Phoenician alphabet. And of course, we don't use any Egyptian alphabets today. But the idea of a phonetic alphabet, where each symbol represents a sound rather than a whole word, came from Egypt. Egyptian hieroglyphs use a symbol for each word, but there were 24 other signs that were phonetic to pronounce loan words and foreign words. Due to the complex nature of hieroglyphs, people had to be trained to use them. This was an elite language, it was not a commoner language at all, so Semitic people in Egypt crafted a 22-letter alphabet based on these phonetic signs. It's now known as the Proto-Sinitic Alphabet. It was completely phonetic, with each letter used to construct a larger word, like our own alphabet today. And this alphabet caught on with Egypt's neighbors, including the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians would make it their own alphabet and call it the Phoenician Alphabet, which spread around the Near East and the Mediterranean world through trading. This acted as the foundation for all alphabets in the Near East, or at least as far as we know. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're gonna take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. They were some of the most powerful men who've ever lived. They waged war, forged peace, and altered the fates of billions of people. And yet, they were just as human, just as flawed as you and me. They were the presidents of the United States, and they are the subjects of the history podcast, This American President. In each episode of This American President, we explore how flawed men have managed this awesome responsibility. To listen now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search This American President on your favorite podcast platform. Now, of course, one of the best legacies that's known by ancient Egypt is paper and writing, specifically papyrus. The Egyptians didn't discover the paper we use today that came later in the, I think, the second or third centuries. But papyrus was a huge step up from carving words into stone. It was far less labor intensive. And it was a huge step up both in terms of the ease of writing and being lighter to carry around. The Egyptians discovered papyrus and the reed pen so they could actually write on it in 3000 BC, but it wasn't until 500 BC when papyrus caught on in the Mediterranean West Asia. Papyrus later became one of Egypt's biggest exports. It was very expensive, and the method by which it was produced was a trade secret. Europe eventually moved on to parchment, inspired by papyrus, and China invented paper in 100 BC using mulberry bark and hemp rags, and this method eventually evolved into the technique that we use today. So Egypt's invention of papyrus fell out of favor, but it was the crucial stepping stone from stone tablets into paper. Another Egyptian innovation was wigs. The reason that these were developed had to do with the dilemma in their society. Egyptians didn't like to have a full head of hair under the heat of the sun, but they didn't want to be completely bald because this would expose their skin to burning. They needed a temporary head of hair that didn't trap as much heat as normal hair, but they still wanted to look good and fashionable. So the answer, of course, was the wig. Now the wig protected against heat, but it had another important function, and that was to protect against head lice. As for what the wigs were made of, the rich could afford to wear wigs made from human hair, either from themselves or from somebody else, Others would use animal hair, sort of like wigs today are made of both materials or they didn't have synthetic materials, but they use different ones and wigs cost different amounts based on how much you could afford. Now let's get down to, these are sort of like interesting little odds and ends and curiosities of ancient Egypt, but something, a contribution they made that's very important has to do with recorded medicine and the foundations of modern medicine, leading to ancient Greek writers like Hippocrates and then later Roman writers like Galen and medieval Middle Eastern writers like Ibn Sina. 
much of these foundations and much of what's done comes out of ancient Egypt. People were treating wounds with all kinds of remedies, herbs and ground up animal parts. And this, of course, predates ancient Egypt by a large margin. All ancient societies had some type of folk remedies. But due to new and convenient writing methods in Egypt, they could produce some of the oldest logs we found of medical procedures and pharmacology. We found nine separate papyrus logs that talk about how the Egyptians performed their medicine. One of them, the Edwin Smith Papyrus, discusses different wounds on each part of the body and their treatments. It's unique as it's the first historical medical description that doesn't rely on supernatural or magical forces to treat the wounds. It's not doesn't just advise you to go to the priest for an exorcism. This makes it scientifically sound, at least as sound as science was at the time. It was based on empirical observations, even though there was, of course, no knowledge of bacteriology or other things like that. Egyptians also developed surgery. To go along with their attempts at putting together empirical medicine, the Egyptians are one of the first civilizations to use surgical tools. They were found within the tomb of Carr, who is known as the physician of the palace and keeper of the secrets of the king. Kept next to his head were several bronze surgical tools, each of which sported a hole as if intended to be hung upon a hook. And since Egyptians wrote down their methods and procedures, there are also surgical logs. These surgical logs detail the removal of cysts and tumors, but unfortunately, we don't have logs of more major surgeries that were performed. That's because there were, probably weren't procedures on how to do it properly, and it might have been uh, not much more than crude guesswork. Medicine in ancient Egypt wasn't only corrective. There was also preventative medicine, including dental care. Egyptians invented the first recorded toothpaste specifically created for oral health. Some Egyptian tombs were even found with toothbrushes, which consisted of a twig frayed on one end. In papyrus documents, the recipe for an Egyptian toothpaste consists of one one-hundredth of an ounce of rock salt, two drachma, and a drachma is one one-hundredth of an ounce of mint, a drachma of dried iris flower, and some pepper. One dentist named Heinz Newman put together this recipe, and he said that while his made his gums bleed, his mouth definitely felt cleaner afterwards. So maybe he wasn't used to the abrasions or the sharp materials that was found in this toothpaste. Toothbrushes and toothpaste were invented because of the grit and sand, which found its way into the bread and vegetables of the daily meals of people there. And dentists weren't very successful in helping people fight tooth decay, apparently. For example, the Queen Hatshepsut, who ruled from 1479 to 1458 BC, actually died from an abscess following a tooth extraction. And we found other recipes uh, for toothpaste, consisting of ground up ox hooves and ash, which mixed with one saliva created a cleansing paste for the teeth. But this recipe did nothing for one's breath. So other recipes included spices like cinnamon and frankincense heated in the honey. And it became something like the world's first breath mint. Now beyond medicine, beyond dentistry, even beyond architecture, what made ancient Egypt possible and the reason that civilization was able to transfer from the Neolithic period into the Bronze Age was because of its agriculture. And Egypt was able to do this because of its huge supply of clean water for their crops and livestock, which they made accessible through irrigation. Ancient Egypt was an agricultural society and developed innovations to help cultivate the land. One of the biggest innovations of the ancient Egyptians was the ox-drawn plow and improvements in irrigation. The ox-drawn plow was designed in two gauges, heavy and light. 
The heavy plow went first and cut the furrows while the lighter plow came behind and turned up the earth. Once the field was plowed, then workers with hoes broke up the clumps of soil and sowed the rows with seed. To press the seed into the furrows, livestock was driven across the field and the furrows were closed. Well, all this work would have been for nothing if the seeds didn't have enough water, and so regular irrigation of the land was extremely important. Here are the techniques that they used, and they worked so well that later on ancient Greece and Rome borrowed them. The Greek philosopher Thales of Miletus, who died in 585 BC, studied in Egypt and may have brought these innovations back to Greece. But he also studied in Babylon and could have learned these techniques from Mesopotamia as well. One of the biggest innovations that the Egyptians introduced was the canal. The yearly inundation of the Nile overflowed its banks and deposited rich soil throughout the valley. This was essential to Egyptian life, but irrigation canals were necessary to carry water to outlying farms and villages as well in order to maintain even saturation of crops near the river. Historian Margaret Bunsen writes, Early farmers dug trenches from the Nile shore to the farmlands using draw wells and then the shadouf a primitive machine that allowed them to raise levels of water from the Nile into canals. Fields thus irrigated produced abundant annual crops. From the pre-dynastic times, agriculture was the mainstay of the Egyptian economy. Most Egyptians were employed in agricultural labors, either on their own lands or on the estates of the temples or nobles. Control of irrigation became a major concern and provincial officials were held responsible for the regulation of water. And to give you an idea of how important being able to irrigate soils is and how it leads to population growth, if you look at the example of Europe, during the Roman Empire, population was centered uh, all along the coast of the Mediterranean, in Italy, in Greece, and elsewhere, because their scratch plow could handle the thin soils around the Mediterranean, but they couldn't do anything in Northern Europe, in modern-day Germany. But in the Middle Ages, the moldboard plow uh, made it possible, this was a heavy plow that was hauled by horses, and these horses were horseshoes so they could handle this thicker soil. The moldboard plow made it possible to plow up this soil and make it productive farmland, and that leads to the huge population growth in northern France, in northern Germany, in Belgium, and the Netherlands, and other places. And because Egypt was able to effectively use and plow its soil and irrigate it, huge swaths of farmland are now available, and this leads to the population growth in ancient Egypt. You can tell that these canals were important because the architecture surrounding them was sometimes really ornate, as in the case of the pharaoh Ramses the Great, who ruled from 1279 to 1213 BC in the city of Per-Ramses in Lower Egypt. Ramses the Great was one of the most prolific builders in Egyptian history, so much so that there's no ancient site in Egypt which doesn't make some mention of his reign and his accomplishments. One of the most impressive of Ramses' monuments is his temple of Abu Simbel, which was designed so that twice a year, on February 21st and October 21st, the sun shines directly into the sanctuary of the temple to illuminate the statues of Ramses and the god Amun. The kind of precision in order to design something like this in, can be seen in temples throughout Egypt, which were all built to mirror the afterlife. The courtyard of the temple, with its reflecting pool, symbolized the lake of flowers in the next world, and the temple itself would stand for various other aspects of the afterlife and the final paradise of the field of reeds. And some of these temples were also used as astronomical observatories. So that gets back into our ancient aliens friend thinking that aliens were 
leaving behind little Easter eggs for future civilizations to discover, since there's no way the Egyptians could have known about these things, but they did know about those things. And when I'm talking about astronomy, I might be throwing around words like science, but that is a huge anachronism when we're talking about an ancient civilization. That's because the word science, uh, it really only comes into existence in the early 19th century. Before that time, you would call yourself a natural philosopher. That is what Isaac Newton considered himself. And the distinction between the term natural philosopher and scientist is very important because a natural philosopher, to make it very simple, wouldn't consider a sharp division between the physical world and the spiritual world. Natural philosophy, you would consider just an extension of philosophy and part of the same unified whole of knowledge that would include theology, understanding the nature of God and the spiritual world, and science and the empirical world was just an extension of that. That's how the Egyptians regarded things like astronomy. It was important to them on two levels, for the practical element of following the stars, but also the spiritual element. Egypt was thought to be a reflection of the land of the gods, and the afterlife was a mirror image of one's life on earth. So this duality is apparent in Egyptian culture in every aspect, and to them, the stars told the stories of the gods' accomplishments and trials, but it also indicated the passage of time and seasons. Here's what Egyptologist Rosalie David says. The Egyptians were noted astronomers who distinguished between the imperishable stars and the indefatigable stars, the planets and stars not visible at all hours of the night. They used stellar observations to determine the true north and were able to orient the pyramids with great accuracy. Each temple was possibly aligned toward a star that had a particular association with a deity resident in that building. And this type of view of astronomy is something that is practical, it's useful for navigation and other things, but also spiritual is found in medieval Europe and up to the Renaissance where people believed in astrology and that there was divine knowledge embedded in the stars. On a more practical level, the stars could tell one when it was going to rain, when it was near in time to plant or harvest crops, and even the best time for making important decisions such as building a home or temple or starting a business. Astronomical observations led to astrological interpretations which may have been adopted from Mesopotamian sources via trade. Astronomical examination of the night skies were interpreted in terms of pragmatism, however, and they were recorded in mathematical calculations measuring weeks, months, and years. Although the calendar was invented by the ancient Sumerians, the concept was adapted and improved upon by the Egyptians. According to many Egyptologists, mathematics in Egypt was entirely practical. It wasn't used as a theoretical science. But ancient writers such as Herodotus and Pliny think that the ancient Egyptians were sources of theoretical mathematics. And part of the reason they think this is that some of the forefathers of Greek scientists like Pythagoras and Plato both studied in Egypt and the importance of mathematical knowledge and their belief systems made them think that the Egyptians did create theoretical mathematics. Plato regarded the study of geometry as necessary for clarity of mind, and it's thought that he took this concept from Pythagoras, who first learned it from the priests in Egypt. In his book Stolen Legacy, The Egyptian Origins of Western Philosophy, scholar George G. M. James argues that Western philosophical concepts are falsely attributed to the Greeks, who merely developed Egyptian ideas, and the same paradigm may hold for the study of mathematics as well. Well, I mean, that might be a little bit too far because the Egyptians did use mathematics on a daily basis for 
things like agriculture, irrigation, and even the pursuit of ultimate truths, they used mathematics on a daily basis for mundane purposes in record-keeping, in developing the schematics for machines such as a water pump, in calculating tax rates, drawing up designs, and working on building projects and architecture. And mathematics was used on a very simple level in the medical arts, in writing prescriptions for patients, in mixing ingredients for medicines and toothpaste, like I mentioned. But the Greeks developed it on a completely different trajectory than what the Egyptians did. So it's a little bit too far to say that Greece, everything that it did was just stolen from the Egyptians. However, the Egyptians did inspire a lot of what they did. And it's notable that Plato and Pythagoras had deep ties to ancient Egypt. And the one last thing I want to mention is the pyramids, but I don't just want to rehash how they were built. I want to talk about how the pyramids informed our understanding of how to commemorate the dead. And that's perhaps one of the biggest legacies that the ancient Egyptians leave behind. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. So in their writings and in their artwork, the Egyptians asked a question that all societies ask. What happens after death? How is the world created? Where does the sun go at night? They didn't have any scientific understanding or way to assess this question. They didn't have the empirical tools. So they answer their own questions with a series of myths and legends designed to explain the otherwise inexplicable. Egypt's pyramids have done a lot to inspire answers to these questions. And the pyramid form in particular still plays an important role in modern architecture. And it can be seen rising above cemeteries and shopping centers, and even at the entrance to the Louvre in Paris. The original pyramids serve as a testament to the mathematical skills of the Egyptians, their practical mathematics. It's a skill that stimulated the Greek mathematicians to perfect the work. The Great Pyramid, built in 2550 BC, for example, stands 150 feet high with a slope of 51 degrees, and its sides, with an average length of 230 meters, vary by less than 5 centimeters, or 2 inches. The pyramids are higher than St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and they were aligned with amazing accuracy, almost exact to true north. But the pyramids were more than a mathematical puzzle. Historian Will Durant writes that the pyramids were tombs, linearly descended from the most primitive of burial mounds. Apparently, the pharaoh believed, like any commoner among his people, that every living body was inhabited by a spirit which need not die with the breath. The pyramid, by its height, its form, and its position, sought stability as a means of deathlessness. So for the more common of Egyptians, they couldn't have a gigantic pyramid like this, but a grave in the earth was the usual final resting place. However, the exact dimensions that Egyptians use in the construction of their pyramids show how important they thought the commemoration of death and how much they wanted to create a link between this world and the next world. For a commoner, the deceased would be buried with grave goods and many of the goods they use in their life. Whatever craft they practice would be buried with them. For both common Egyptians and royalty, sacred spells from the work known as the Egyptian Book of the Dead were recited in order to direct the soul toward the Hall of Truth and judgment of the great god Osiris. Osiris would then weigh the heart of the deceased against the white feather of Mat, truth and harmony, and if one's heart was found lighter than the feather, one was given passage to the field of reeds, the Egyptian paradise, which was an eternal mirror image of one's life on earth. One's heart was found to be heavier than the feather of Mat, then it was thrown to the floor where it was eaten by the god Amenti, also known as Amut, 
and the soul of the individual then ceased to exist. In ancient Egypt, non-existence was the worst punishment imaginable. So maybe pyramids were a way to deal with their fears of death and imagine that they were doing something to grease the skids of the afterlife and make sure that they would be able to exist forever. The Egyptian tradition among royalty of creating great monuments and tombs inscribed with their deeds was observed to make sure the ruler wouldn't be forgotten by the living and would continue to exist on earth even after death. To ease one's memory on earth was to erase one's immortality, and at the Great Pyramid of Giza, the royal pyramids were adorned with paintings depicting the life and accomplishments of the deceased king and filled with all those necessities the spirit would need in the afterlife in the field of reeds. Pharaohs were interned in the area known as the Valley of the Kings, and their tombs were elaborate eternal homes which reflected their status as divine rulers. So that's something that Egypt did. It gave ancient societies probably the best template of how to deal with eternal questions of the afterlife. So there you go in this episode. This is how ancient Egypt affects modern society. They developed irrigation to a highly sophisticated degree, perhaps more sophisticated than any other ancient civilization. They developed cosmopolitan society. They developed sophisticated administration, making massive public works projects like the Sphinx and the Great Pyramid possible. They developed early medicine. They developed functional mathematics, which made it possible for other civilizations to go further and make conceptual mathematics like the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. They developed our understanding of death and how to conquer the fears of death by making many think that they can exert control over what happens in the next life. So those are all the many, many ways that ancient Egypt influenced modern society. Well, that's all for today's episode. Thanks for sticking with me all the way to the end. First off, I'd like to thank History Unplugged's Spy Masters, which you can easily become, and I'll explain what that is after listing them off. They are, in no particular order, Baron Fraser, Chris C., David Santi, Josh from VFW Post 2285, Jake Harrington, Josh Reddick, Jeff Mitchell, owner of Mountainless Commercial Las Vegas, Michael from New York, Michael Piccinetti, Nick Brooks, Rob from Chicago, Salvador Sanchez, Tom from Ohio, Moondoggy from Ohio, Bill Ivey, Bruce Ashby from Wire Meets Wood Guitars, WMWGuitars.com, Los, Sergeant Hooch, Sumo41, and Willie from New Jersey. Now, having thanked my spy masters, I'd like to mention some ways you can get more involved with what I'm doing with History Unplugged. First, if you want to comment on the most recent episodes, you can check out the History Unplugged Facebook or YouTube page, which are video recordings of all the episodes, and they often come out before the audio episodes do. Second, please like and subscribe to the show on the podcast player of your choice. This helps the show grow and find new listeners. Finally, the best way you can get involved is to join History Unplugged's membership program called the Dalton's Rangers. This is the place where you can directly partner with me when it comes to the creation of the sorts of episodes I do, or I can most directly talk with you, the listener. I call it the Knowlton's Rangers because they were George Washington's spies during the Revolutionary War. Go to patreon.com unplugged and you can join at three levels. Join at the scout level, you'll get early access to all new episodes and completely ad-free episodes, and I have about 500 by now. Join at the intelligence officer level. You get all the same stuff as level one, and you also get premium episodes. I'm doing a series on the life of Audie Murphy, on Americans who fought in World War I for the French Foreign Legion, and another series on Teddy Roosevelt's adventures in the Dakota Badlands. I have about 50 or so of these episodes now. Finally, if you join at the Spymaster level, you get all the things from the first two tiers. You get a shout out to you and or your business at the end of each episode. You get three hardcover books and you can ask me a question on absolutely anything in history and I will devote an entire episode to answering it. 
So check out all those bonuses by going to patreon.com slash unplugged. Beautiful listeners, that is all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time.